Exodus 23, beginning at verse 20, and reading through the end of the chapter. Once again, friends, this is God's holy word. Hear it. Behold, says the Lord, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inspired and inerrant word to us tonight. May he be pleased to write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Let's pray again, friends. O Lord, your word is spread before us. With open Bibles and spread out pages, we give ourselves over to its study. We ask that you would grant us your Holy Spirit's ministry of illumination again tonight. That you would enable us to understand and to believe and to cherish all that we study and ponder this night. For we do ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You know, we've come across them, we all have from time to time, these strange laws that seem out of place quaint rules that may have served their purpose at one time, but are just odd or maybe even pointless now, even though they're still on the books. For instance, in Gainesville, Georgia, it is illegal to eat fried chicken with anything other than your hands. This ordinance was put on the books in 1968. Apparently, a 91-year-old woman was arrested in 2009 for breaking this rule while celebrating her birthday at a local eatery. Some laws are still enforced. In Indiana, it is illegal to ride your horse faster than 10 miles per hour on any city street. In Arizona, it is illegal for a donkey to sleep in a bathtub. And in Kansas, it is illegal to serve cherry pie on the same plate as vanilla ice cream. 
the ice cream must be served in a separate bowl, punishable by either one night in jail or up to $600 cash fine. We chuckle at these quaint rules from yesteryear, most of which probably, well, maybe, have served a reasonable purpose in pre-industrial modernization era, but now they just seem odd and out of place. I suspect some commentators have suggested that the laws in chapters 21 and 22 and the early part of chapter 23 here in the book of Exodus may well have been viewed by Israel in a similar vein. We can forgive an observant Israelite, not even a cynical Israelite, but just the average Israelite who might look around and think, God's giving us all these rules, he's giving us all these stipulations, he's giving us all these statutes, but we haven't got any land, we haven't got any cities, we haven't got any fields. So what's really the point of all these laws? They're not terribly relevant, are they? Maybe not yet, but they will be. The people of Israel will have a home. God will make good on his promises. Not one of his promises shall fail. He has no falling words, and the Lord will bring his people to the promised land. That's part of what God is showing Israel at this point in Exodus, that there is an end in sight. These things are not arbitrary. These things are not irrelevant. These things are not useless, quaint, obscure, or pointless. It may not feel like it, but the end goal, the telos, the result of their redemption, is starting, however so, in such a shadowy and shady manner, it's starting to come into view. But, just like God's pilgrim people in every age, Old Testament and New Testament, people on a pilgrim journey, having here no lasting city, but looking to that city which is to come, the truth is, God's people can get weary. They can get discouraged. The slog of pilgrimage gets long and tiresome. It was true for Israel, and it's true for us. Are we ever going to get there? <laughs> Parents are used to hearing that in the car on long road trips. Right, kids? You ever say that to your mom and dad? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Well... A parallel spiritual sentiment, it's not uncommon among God's people. Sin is real. Life in this world can be wearisome. Some of us have been trudging along at this journey for quite a long while. Will it ever end? Will we ever get to the blessed end that we've been promised? Well, the answer, beloved, is that yes, we will. And God in his kindness is pleased to give us those reminders and those refreshers along the way to encourage our souls to keep pressing on. That's what he's doing here for Israel. They're barely getting started on their journey, but even, even already, as we're about to see in the, in the subsequent chapters, they're already starting to get tired and discouraged and weary, and they need that prodding, and they need that refreshment along the way. And the promises that he gives Israel here in many ways, they're not new promises per se, but rather they're reminders of old promises, a rehashing of the same promises that God gave to Father Abraham centuries ago in those earlier chapters in Genesis. There is coming a time when Abraham's descendants will be a wandering people no more, but they will take possession of the land of Canaan. So God swore to Abraham, and so he reminds Israel here now. The Lord gives them some promises, some encouragements to press them on their way, to keep going. Now, some, several commentators make this observation, and they outline the passage like this, and so we will do likewise tonight. At least three things, really more, but at least three things, the Lord promises them here in this passage. A guide, 
a home, and a victory. The Lord promises them a guide to lead them there to the promised land. He promises them a home for when they finally arrive to Canaan's fair and pleasant land. And then he promises them victory over their enemies, the enemies, the tribes, the peoples who currently dwell there. So let's think first about the first promise that he gives them, a guide, an angel, a guard of sorts. You might say a guardian angel, but in the best and most biblical sense of the term, not not in the sentimentalized meaning that often gets conjured up when we hear that term. Verse 20 and following, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Now God promises them a guide or a guard who will lead them and bring them safely to the land that is prepared for them. He is, this guide is an angel. An angel, scripture says. Now in Hebrew, just like as in Greek, angel can mean a supernatural angelic being like the seraphim, but it can also mean simply a messenger. And depending on the context, sometimes the word angel may get applied to a merely human person serving as a messenger of God. But very often, angel is applied to a supernatural being who is also serving in a capacity as a, as a messenger of God, doing his bidding, like the angel Gabriel, for instance, the angel of the Lord, as he so often appears in the Old Testament. Do notice the beginning of verse 21, because that is the key clue to understanding about this angel being spoken of here. Verse 21, pay careful attention to him and to obey his voice. Now, notice how similar is the verbiage to verse 13 earlier in this same chapter, which we studied last week. God tells Israel, pay attention to all that I have said to you. They come from that same same Hebrew verb, which essentially means be attentive, listen up, tune in. So do notice the connection. Verse 13, pay attention to what I, God, have said to you. Verse 13, and now verse 21. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do you see, the people of Israel are to give the same attentive obedience to this angel that they render to God. Hmm. And just in case you might think, well, the angel is God's messenger, and so they should just listen up and heed him and respect him the same way they would respect any of God's messengers, like Moses or Isaiah. Just in case we might think that, Verse 22 leaves us with no doubt. Carefully obey his voice and do all that I say. The voice of the angel is the speech of God. And do notice the rest of verse 21. Do not turn against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for, God says, my name is in him. As we've observed before in the book of Exodus, especially back in chapter 3, at the scene of the burning bush and the disclosing of God's divine name, we learn from Exodus and and elsewhere in Scripture that the name of God, as one commentator puts it, is really shorthand for the being and the glory of God revealed to the world. As the late Professor John Mackay put it, the name is a revelation of the character and attributes of God, which means that here we have a unique dignity accorded to the angel as manifesting all that God has made known regarding 
himself, close quote. When God says here of this angel, my name is in him, it's just another way of saying, I am in him. Now, many theologians have suggested and concluded, really, that in the Old Testament, many times, many times in the Old Testament, perhaps every time, the angel of the Lord is actually a pre-incarnate manifestation of God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, a pre-incarnate Lord Jesus, if you will. And while there may be some reasonable debate to be had on some of those instances in the Old Testament, this one seems fairly straightforward. An angel whose voice is to be obeyed with the same reverence as that of God, who has the authority to forgive or not forgive transgression or sin, it's not a stretch at all to conclude that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. It is God the Son himself who will guard and guide the people of God as they move forward in their wilderness wanderings. Particularly persuasive and identifying is the fact that the text says this angel has the power to pardon their transgressions, according to verse 21. This is a particular sticking point in the New Testament as the crowds and the religious authorities are grappling with Jesus and his messianic identity and the authority that he seems to be assuming to himself. Remember Mark chapter 2? Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sin but God alone? And immediately Jesus says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose and picked up his bed and went out before them all. No one can forgive sin but God. No one can make the lame walk but God. And there in Mark chapter 2 is Jesus doing both, doing precisely those things. It is the character and nature of God within and upon this angel who Israel must heed. And scripture says of the Lord Jesus that he is, Hebrews 1, 3, Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Several of the commentators point out, and I think that this is entirely right, that there is a wonderful parallel here to John's gospel, chapter 14. Here in Exodus, Israel needs to know the way to the promised land. They need to get there safely. They can't do it themselves. So God provides this guide, this, this angel here in chapter 23 to show them the way. Fast forward to John chapter 14. Remember, Jesus tells his disciples, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, Israel, making its way through the wilderness, is a type of our Christian pilgrimage, a picture of the Christian life. And Jesus is the one who goes ahead of us and prepares a place for us, according to John chapter 14. And he himself is the way to get to that place. Israel would get to the promised land only in the grace and by the guidance of the angel of the Lord. Likewise, we come to the Father only in and through and by the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved brothers and sisters, there are 
a thousand and one potential diversions in life, some more deadly than others, desperately clamoring for our attention. And don't we know it? The siren calls for more fame, more money, ethical shortcuts to make maximum gain, glistening political promises, and oh, the way to make a name for ourselves. We need a guide, don't we? We need, to, we need a guide to show us the right way and the good way to help us discern which endeavors are good and useful and which are just deadly divergences, wanton and sinful indulgences, distractions, and potentially soul-wounding diversions off of our journey toward that city which is to come. We need such a guide and such a diversion and distraction-infested life as this. And praise God, we have such a guide in Christ Jesus He calls his people, he calls his sheep by his word, his voice. His sheep know his voice and we follow him. Jesus is the only safe guide and he will go ahead of us to prepare the way that we may find our way to the good land. So we fix our eyes on him and we follow him. So that's the first thing, a guide. A guide is promised, an angel, the angel of the Lord, God the Son himself. But then secondly, there's also a promise, not only of a guide, but there's also a promise of home here, of home, which has all kinds of connotations of land and rest and safety and belonging. Now, strictly speaking, the Lord is promising to bring them to and give them a plot of soil, Canaan. And to give it to them, he's going to have to drive out the current occupants first, and we'll talk about that in just a few minutes. But God promises to give them land He promises to give them relief from their enemies by driving those enemies out and giving them relief from their wandering journey and to give them real blessing, great blessing while he's there, verses 25 and 26. And so, while some commentators point out that the land blessing and other commentators point out the safety blessing and others will meditate long on the rest blessing, these different aspects that are given here, land and rest and safety, I really rather like how one commentator summed it all up by calling it home. I mean, isn't that what home connotes? A place to live and safety and relief, rest and security and prosperity and abundance. You see, God is promising them not just a dormitory, but a home. Not just a bare plot of soil, but a place to belong, a place to dwell, a place to have safety and security and refuge on account of him. A home. Look at verses 25 and 26. You shall serve the Lord your God and he will bless your bread and your water and will take away sickness from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. Not only will the Lord bring them into the land of Canaan, but he will richly bless them as they live there. Not not just a place to stay, to to exist, but a home that will suit them and bless them. As one commentator observed, as they live in obedience to his commandments and refuse to bow to idols, the Lord promises to bless their food, to remove sickness, to prevent miscarriage, and to give them long and full lives. Now I think it's important to give a few caveats and qualifications. One, and maybe this is obvious to some of you, but I think it's still worth saying, these promises were not absolute promises. The Old Testament, really all of Scripture, was quite comfortable 
in speaking in generalities, giving broad and general promises to God's people and speaking in a way that makes the hyper-precisionists among us uncomfortable from time to time. God is not saying that nothing bad or unpleasant shall ever befall them there. No, after all, consider the rules and regulations that have just come before this section in Exodus. Various regulations, which we've studied in the past few weeks. Those rules assume, don't they, the reality of sin and unpleasantness. There's various rules about what to do when something is stolen, or when there is a killing, or even an accidental death. No miscarriages, this promise says here in chapter 23, but back in chapter 22, verse 21, for example, it talks about what happens if a fight breaks out and a pregnant woman is struck and the baby is born prematurely, or perhaps even if a miscarriage occurs. Sickness and death, suffering and sadness would still puncture their lives as it does for all of us in this fallen, sin-tainted world until Christ comes again. But in general... As we've said before when we study the scripture, in general, we find this promise and general truth that there is blessing in obedience. There is blessing in obedience. Not meriting salvation, not salvific obedience, no, no, but rather that there is goodness in God's commands, brothers and sisters. And in general, to order our lives after his commands is, and his ways is to find great blessing. It's one of the great struggles of our Christian life, isn't it? Do we really believe that God's ways are the best ways? Do we really believe that God's commands are good and that there is actual blessing to be had in subscribing to them? Almost all of our sin really is a struggle to believe that what God said is right and true and good or not to. Life on God's terms will usually yield holiness and happiness. Just like that language from the children's catechism, how were Adam and Eve made in that original estate? He made them holy and happy. Holiness and happiness will usually be found on account of life on God's terms. God is leading Israel to Canaan's fair and pleasant land, and if they will heed his voice and follow his commands in general, it will go well for them. There is plenty of sin-wrought misery in this life and in this world. Sickness and death and pain and childbearing, all the effects of the curse per Genesis chapter 3. And the Lord in his kindness is pleased to mitigate some of the effects of the fall as he brings his people to the promised land. And of course, brothers and sisters, that reality is but a pale shadow, a type, a picture, pointing to the reality, the better and permanent reality that all of God's people will be brought in to Christ. Israel's pilgrimage points to our own pilgrimage and Canaan points to the greater reality that awaits us in heaven and ultimately in the glorified state in the new heavens and new earth. God's people long for that reality, don't we? That place where, if I might embellish on a popular turn of phrase, everything, not just everything sad, but everything wrong will become untrue. It's Revelation 21, just like we heard earlier this afternoon at Bill Grenier's memorial service. Revelation 21, isn't it? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things 
have passed away. We, we look around us all the time and we think, this isn't it. <laughs> we look around our world, we look around our situation, we look around our nation, we look around our lives, we think this, this can't be it. This can't be all that there is. This can't be how it's supposed to be. We're pressing on to that, to that blessed promise. And this is what God, through Moses, is saying to Israel. He's saying, look around at this hot, sandy, desert wilderness that you're trudging through right now. This isn't it. Press on to the better home that awaits you. Run the race with endurance, Hebrews says. Lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares. Looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Friends, we may be belaboring the point to the point of being pedantic, but I trust you know that this world, this present reality, is not our home. A new heaven and earth where we shall forever dwell with the Lord awaits us, where we shall forever be with him, which, as the Apostle Paul says, is far better. It's far better. And I wonder if that's not perhaps a point of conviction for some of us. Because, beloved, if the life and the world to come does not excite us, if it does not cheer us, if pondering it does not comfort us, if pondering the life to come does not prompt us with some longing, there must be something deficient in our souls. If, if glory does not excite us, but we look around and say, I'm happy with everything as it is. Right? My comforts and luxuries... Wealth and food and drink, all these creature comforts, this is good enough. Something is wrong. Or, I will often challenge people, including myself, if we ponder heaven and we think, ah, a land free of sickness and pain and need, where I will see all my loved ones again, all good things. But if we can pine for all of that and not Christ, if Christ and his presence is not a factor in our longings for paradise, then something is seriously wrong with us, brothers and sisters. If you can imagine heaven and all of its bliss and paradise with nary a sickness and nary a disease and nary a problem and nary a worry and all your beloved friends and family reunited together again and you can imagine this heaven and Jesus is not there and you can be content with that, that is a problem. As we sing so often, fading is the worldling's pleasure, all its boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. Soon and very soon, the Lord will bring us home where Christ is. So let's fix our gaze on him and keep pressing on, beloved. So that's the second thing we need to see from this text. First, a guide, but then secondly, a home. The Lord is bringing them and us to a permanent home. But then thirdly, there's also the promise of victory. Verses 22 to 24 And then again down in verses 27 to 33. The promised land has some current tenants, some occupants, and Israel must take it by force. The Amorites and the Hittites, the Perizzites and Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, they're all still there. But verse 22, if they obey God's voice, he will, verse 27, send his terror ahead of Israel and throw their enemies into confusion. He'll send hornets, verse 28, ahead of the Israelite army, to make life in Canaan miserable. And in his great wisdom, he will drive them out. Notice verse 30, little by little, so that the land will not lie desolate and barren. 
Israel will come to take possession of it over time. And God himself will do it. Do you see that emphasis? Verse 22. God says, I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. What a comfort. (laughs) Strangely, yet not so strangely, those words are. Verse 27, I will send my terror. Verse 28, I will send hornets. Verse 29, I will. Verse 30, I will. It almost evokes that phrase that we love from 1 Samuel 17. The battle belongs to the Lord. What a picture this is of the Christian life, isn't it? Israel doesn't take possession of the whole of the promised land in a day, not even in a single year. But as it says in verse 29, or verse 30, little by little. Sounds like sanctification. Sounds like discipleship. Sounds like spiritual growth. Sounds like the life of the saints. Little by little. Little by little, the saints are growing up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Ephesians 4, verse 15. Now, do notice the dynamic at play with Israel? Just like ourselves, they're called to war, They're called to fight, to exert, to do battle. That's not a call to passivity here. But it is God who gives them the victory. We wrestle, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. We press on, we fight sin, we keep praying and trusting and clinging and going and giving and worshiping. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who is at work in us both to will and to work his good pleasure. You see, there is no room for compromise or a truce with sin, just as much as there was no room for compromise or a truce with the pagan inhabitants of the land. No, Israel's conquest will have to be total. Brook no quarter for the enemy. An utter wipeout, just like your battle and mine with sin. That's how it has to be. Make a truth with sin. Let sin come thus far and give it a little bit of room, but then give it a stopping line. No, no, no. No truce with sin. And in verses 32 and 33, notice God warns his people not to sign a treaty with the nations of the land. There will be, there can be no truce with them. They will be a snare to you and they will lead you into idolatry, he says. And if you and I try to accommodate sin and the devil, sin will never be content with a detente or a ceasefire. Israel must fight, and we must wage war, doing so confident in the victory that God has promised to the end of what? That we pat ourselves on the back? (laughs) Well done, thou good and faithful me. No, no. We sing the song of Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but unto your name give glory. 1 Thessalonians 5 24, and he who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. Israel's predicted strivings here in Exodus 23 are a type and a picture of the life of the saint, of the Christian life, aren't they? In this world, you will have tribulation, tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world, says the Lord Jesus, John 16, 33. As one man says, and the chief joy of our lives together on that great day in the home of righteousness around the throne will be to ascribe to the Lamb who has triumphed all the praise and all the glory forever and ever. 
See, the guide will lead us there. He's promised us a home, and he's assured us of the victory. And so on we press to take possession of it, to to one day take hold at last of the object of our faith, faith one day, one day finally made sight. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. We stay in the fight. We soldier on. For we cannot lose. He will surely do it. Dark, dark hath been the midnight, but day spring is at hand. And glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. We press on to there. Let's pray. Lord God, we do bless you for your holy word and for your great and precious promises by which we have everything we need for life and godliness. And we thank you for Jesus, our forerunner who goes ahead of us, like that angel of the Lord going ahead of the people of Israel and guiding them to their final destination. Likewise, here we have the Lord Jesus preparing a place for us, and he will protect us on the way, and he will bring us home at last. We cling to him, and we give you praise for Jesus' sake. Amen.